You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. The Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network is brought to you by Onyx Hunt. Bringing you the best GPS mapping software directly to your smartphone or desktop, Onyx offers you the ability to see property boundaries, mark waypoints, track your location, and so much more. Visit onyxmaps.com or you can download it directly from your app store today. Save 20% off of your purchase by using the code NATION20 at checkout. That's capital N NATION followed by the number 20. Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith and Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. Oh man, here we are back for another Land and Legacy podcast. Thank you guys so much for joining us once again. Adam here. Matt is here. And uh, we are a little bit, it's a little bit noisier in the background um, because we are live at the National Wild Turkey Federation National Convention. 44th annual National Convention at the Media Roost Booth Space Location. Man, is it happening here today. A lot of people coming in, and, and I guess doors just really kind of opened up here. So I think it's going to be a great week, and this is one of the events that we always look forward to each and every year. We've been here for what we talked about. It's, what, six years in a row here now? Something um, like that. It's my favorite ooh, show of the year for definitely. the simple fact that there's just <laughs> so many people. There's so many different booths. Yeah, yeah. And uh, just lots of turkey chat. This is kind of the one thing. To me, if you were to look at the course of January to April, like what's the thing that's like, okay, turkey season yes. is right here. Spring is right this here. This is the reminder. It's right here. This is definitely the, the reminder. The National Convention. Because you get your calls. You talk turkeys all the time. You meet everyone that you share turkey hunts with or stories or pictures with. Um, they're all right here, right now. And so it, it's definitely that like, oh, man, we, it's right around the corner. I cannot wait. But this year's a little bit different for us. We're, we have our own little booth, thanks to National Wild Turkey Federation. Absolutely. Right here at the Media Roost yeah. Podcast Central. The hub. By Go Wild App, sponsored yep. by the Go Wild App, made all this happen. We're sitting here watching people scream by, stomp, march their way by. Strut, Ooh, strut I like that their one. way by. <laughs> um, a few fly downs yep. zip by us um, as they're headed into the convention convention center. Um, where all the exhibitors are. So we've got an interesting uh, plan. We don't really know who's coming on. We Honestly, it could run the gamut of everyday turkey hunters to some uh, spokespeople for big industries or for um, government entities too. Or it may turn into 
several podcasts <laughs> with just us. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's the cool thing about this is because you never really know who you're going to run into, and you can have uh, varying conversations with turkey hunters from across the country. They might be hunting birds down in Florida in a couple of weeks, or they're hunting in May during um, the latter portions of the year. So y- you run all sorts of things, but we're this is kind of one of those booths that's, man, if you can talk conservation, you want to talk habitat, you're welcome. We'll pull up a chair and jump on with us. We, we want to chat with you. Absolutely. So going to be an exciting weekend for us. It's Thursday. We'll kick off, I guess it finalizes Saturday. Yep. Then we go do a couple of consults each. Yep. So I'll do two consults. You'll do two consults. I'm in Kentucky. You're in Tennessee. Yep. And uh, so then we'll circle back and make our way home on Tuesday, Tuesday night. Yep. And so uh, it's going to be a bit a busy weekend, but it's once again a great reminder that spring is just around the corner. Turkey season will be here before we know it. But before that happens, right. we're going to talk a whole lot of podcast, a whole lot of habitat. A whole lot. And there you guys have it. There Welcome we to the show. I told you we were here. <laughs> <laughs> now you believe us yet? Yeah. Exactly. All right, guys, we are kicking off the NWTF show with our first guests. I'm going to go ahead and let them introduce themselves and what they do, and we'll dive into everything wonderful about native landscapes and land management. Hey, well, well, thanks for having us on here. I'm Steve Barlow. I'm with the National Wild Turkey Federation. I'm a wildlife biologist, and, you know, this is this is my, my subject, right? I love to talk about land management because – we all know it's about habitat, and that's mm. what we do, right? So um, thanks for having us on here. Grateful to be here. Uh, my little niche with NWTF is with energy companies, believe it or not. And so I work to partner with energy companies to encourage them to do habitat work on their rights of ways. So just think power lines, pipelines. Those what we call linear assets, yeah. uh, that's what I focus on with the work I do. And, you know, my goal is really to kind of create, like, the world's largest food plot, right? That's <laughs> like what that. I'm yeah. trying to Native do. Food plots. And so I guess maybe I've got some huge goals, but, you know, for, <laughs> for what my work's about and, and what my life's about and my passion, it's a great opportunity. So, so that's what I do with NWTF and, and just grateful to be here this morning to kind of kind of share that with you gentlemen and and I think there's some things there's some things that we do on these rights of ways it, it that would also lend itself to the private landowner or anyone that's wanting to you know enhance the habitat on their land to the benefit of wild turkeys white-tailed deer uh, we could just list a long list of species that benefit from this work um, we don't know everything about every way to do it but but we do feel like we're doing some great stuff out there on the landscape for wildlife uh, with energy companies and, and I'm very grateful to have that opportunity and thanks again for having me and I brought on uh, one of our partners at NWTF is joining us uh, this morning on the program and that's Travis Rogers. Uh, Travis, the same kind of passion, I'm going to let Travis uh, talk a little bit about what he does, who he's with and why they partner with NWTF. Sure, thanks Steve. Uh, my name is Travis Rogers, I'm with Corteva AgriScience and I work in represent Corteva AgriScience uh, many of you may have not heard of Corteva AgriScience, but we are the agriculture chemical company that um, was a result of the merger between Dow Chemical and DuPont Crop Protection. And so we are involved in a lot of different businesses, both seed crop protection and a lot of specialty businesses 
And the specialty business I'm in or represent and support is the pasture and land management business. In land management, we're talking forestry as well as uh, rights of ways. Um, and so we've partnered with Steve with the National Wild Turkey Federation because we see a great opportunity to help educate folks and talk about land management. Two primary methods that are used uh, for managing right of ways as well as um, also private lands. We've got mechanical methods, uh, the use of herbicides as well, and then of course fire. And with both fire and mechanical, they both are excellent tools um, in the toolbox, but herbicides provide another element in the fact that they can be used to actually control woody plants. When we're talking about trying to enhance the land for wildlife habitat, you know, a lot of times when you leave land unmanaged, it's going to do its thing over time, and yeah. you may have a lot of plant species that you really don't want that yeah. aren't providing wildlife um, value. And so by incorporating herbicides into a management plan, management program, you can go in and specifically target those species and leave and enhance um, and actually remove the, the competition that they would provide to uh, encourage more of whatever you're trying to grow. Yeah, more uh, beneficial species. That's right, whether it be yeah. um, deer, turkey, other types of pollinators. And so we think it's a valuable tool, and we think incorporated in as a part of overall program makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's awesome. So you said something earlier that got it. I think listeners go the world's largest food plot and they're going <laughs> man that's one long strip of soybeans or that's one long strip of clover and so let's let's hear what you're actually designing and and how that's more beneficial than what they may have pictured immediately yeah so you know we're really looking at a diverse mix it's not a monoculture that's not what we're after mm-hmm. yeah and so as travis is is kind of speaking to there we're using selective herbicides. That's yep. the tool we would use. And beyond that, most of the time, it's even selective application. So Certainly. it's individual right. plant treatments. Yep. So on a right-of-way, one of the things we'd want to kind of, uh, you know, kind of not encourage, maybe is the best way to say it, would be woody, some woody plants. Maybe they're going to grow up into the power line, right? Yeah. Um, so we would selectively use selective herbicides. They've got some great chemistry at Corteva that helps with that. Uh, but then also backpack applications, right, that, that would select to remove those particular plants. But what that does, that's a forcing factor like fire, that chemical, right? Yeah. But what that does is it starts to set you up for success because removing that woody vegetation is going to release the seed bank that exists there naturally. And pretty soon, within a couple of years, you're going to have this diverse mix Almost like God did it, right? Almost, yeah. yeah. So you <laughs> who, didn't who have knew, to. Right? Yeah, you didn't have to. Have you been to, on the podcast <laughs> before? I swear he's listening. He said he didn't know, but I, I, I think he knows. Well, I do a lot of praying, so yeah. I don't know if that counts. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but yeah, so you get out there, and, you know, within a relatively short time, you've set the stage where you have this diverse mix. You're not having to do a lot of inputs. In fact, the inputs go down over time. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the great things about the program that I work with with energy companies is, let's face it, I can sit down with them and I can talk butterflies and birds all day. But once I mention inputs go down, operational costs go down, yep. then they start listening. Make it applicable to a, right. to a business guy. Exactly. And, again, the same thing with a private landowner. 
Um, yeah. There's nothing wrong with planting a food plot, right? There's yeah. nothing wrong with that. But it's time, it's cost, investment, and you get an annual crop typically. What we're doing with this approach is we're making a everlasting crop, right? And when it's diverse, you're going to have food at various times of the year. And, you know, to kind of go a little further on that, folks ask me, well, why, does, why would the NWTF care about a right-of-way? And one thing that's really critical about turkey populations, and a lot of people don't understand this because, you know, you see turkeys everywhere. Think about it. You know, you might see them in a suburban area. You might see them in a, in a hay meadow. You may see them in a swamp. So, you know, from the surface, you may think, well, a turkey can use any habitat. But if you look at the life cycle, the life history of a wild turkey, you'll find there's one critical stage of their lives, and that's this nesting brooding mm-hmm. phase where they have to have a good supply of insects for these poults to eat. They've got to put on feathers quickly. They've got to be able to fly quickly. If they don't, they're going to suffer from predation, right? Yeah. So recruitment, getting those new poults, and I don't care if you're talking about bobwhite quail, turkey, rough grouse, lot, rough grouse yeah. lots of other birds, right? They, they have to have that habitat component. And that's the reason why NWTF is so vet invested in energy companies and rights of ways. Um, the huge potential to get this, this critical habitat component on the landscape with over 5 million miles of rights of ways. And the spatial arrangement, which is so critical with wildlife, yeah. is, is almost like we couldn't have planned it any better, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. To get these right-of-ways going through mature timber yeah. and places where you really need this habitat component. And, again, it puts those chicks in a, in a position where they can be successful. It sets them up for success. I mean, there's about a – 18-day period there where they got to go like keto carnivore, yes. right? They were, they were keto <laughs> before anybody was. Yes. And yep. they got to have that constant supply of insects. Yep. And where do you find insects? Grasshoppers, you know, those things. Yep. You're going to find them on a right-of-way. Yep. And so that's really why we're into this. That's why we're set up for it. That's why we push it. Um, and then having partners like Corteva on our side with great chemical mixtures, uh, great application techniques, uh, that they can help us with, it sets all of us up for success to get what I call the world's largest food plot out there going. That's Absolutely. awesome. Going and maintain, and that's one of the things that you know, people who are listening are like, okay, largest food plot. Guys, this is what we always refer to as like old field habitat. That That's the early successional plant communities that are just naturally there, and they're just cross-sections cut through the, through the timber. Perfect. It, none of this was planted. Right. It was just there in the seed bank and exposed sunlight, and then you're you off know, to the races. Uh, to the layman, and I've gotten complaints on this. So so we may have a right-of-way go through a suburban area where everybody's got beautifully mown fescue mm-hmm. or St. Augustine grass, <laughs> and we come in and want to install this management technique on a right-of-way, and sometimes we get complaints because – to the layman, it just looks like a weedy field. Like yeah. it looks un, it looks unmaintained. Yep. Like they see that. For a biologist, we see huge potential, right? Mm, yeah. We see diversity. We see you know diverse forbs and and, and grasses and yep. native plants. And once we get that established, it does reach that steady state. Uh, you know, it eliminates competition. I mean, it it, it promotes what we want and yeah. outcompetes a lot of your undesirables. Uh, cer- certainly it takes some work to get there, 
But once you get there, it's it's it, you know it's easy to maintain, and of course the energy companies appreciate that as well. Absolutely. I mean, you think about, I think about power lines in in the Ozarks where I where I call sure. home, and it's like every three years, bring the mowers through, oh, yeah. and they're having yeah. to cut back the woody vegetation. Yep. And right. it's just a continued. And then when they do that, there's like this. All you get are these little stobs, oh, and there's not a whole lot of it. oh yeah, absolutely. early successional plants in there. Yeah, and so that. You know, that's, 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 that's our biggest challenge that I face, right? So I'll meet with an energy company, and they'll say, well, you know, we're pretty happy with what we've been doing. We mow every three years, you know. And then, you know, I say, well, what's your mowing budget? And as you can – you know how much it costs oh. to mow your yard? Like you yeah. pay your local, you know, high school kid maybe to mow your yard. It's not yeah. cheap, right? So imagine when you've got 800 miles that you need to have mown, Right. That's a lot of money. Yeah. And, you know, and a lot bigger equipment. And, yeah. and you know, they, they've traditionally done that, so I'm kind of fighting tradition mm-hmm. often when I meet with an energy company. Yeah. And they've got relationships, right? You know, they know the, the contractor that mows, and I understand all that. But when I can, you know, kind of talk to them about, hey, this, this approach is going to be maybe a little bit more expensive up front but we're going to get rid of that woody root system that you're just – all you're doing Fight. is just encouraging. Yeah. Yeah. And within three – give me three years. Give me three years. I'm going to cut it in half. I'm going to cut your budget in half. And I'm going to multiply the wildlife out there, the species of forbs and grasses. Yeah, um, which helps you develop know. a better relationship with those landowners that they're crossing exactly. and utilizing coming onto their properties with. And that's a great point, and that's probably one of the greatest, uh, if you would, compliments I get on the mm-hmm. program from these companies is they come back to me and they say, you know what, we have to deal with these landowners every day. Yeah. And that puts another, you know, arrow in our quiver. When we meet with a landowner, we can tell them, hey, you know what? Here's a program. This is why we're doing what we're doing. This is why we're using herbicides. Sure. You, you, you may not like herbicides, but here's why we're doing it. And here's a third party, a nonprofit, a conservation group. This isn't the, the, mm-hmm. the, the energy company saying it. Here's NWTF saying it. And here's why we're doing what we do. And that... Like you said, that's one of the things the energy companies really appreciate about this program is that landowner relation. It yeah. certainly helps with that for them for them as well. Absolutely. That's awesome. Yeah, I think I just picture vast amounts of timber country, and then you go to the power line, and it's like young forest. It's not really changed a lot. And you guys right. are making the very best habitat in these strips of these right-of-ways. And so the landowner now who's probably hunting there anyway, now has a very attractive, very beneficial landscape out in front of him that is now his native food plot. That's right. And, and I'll mention one other thing. You kind of talked about mature timber. And yeah. um, I, I'm a little older than you guys, maybe, maybe twice as old as, as you guys. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, this is ready. I told you you shouldn't have shaved that. last Man, night. <laughs> Yesterday he had a beard. I did. And it's he gone. shaved it like right before we went to bed. And then I woke up today and we I were eating breakfast. Myself. And I'm like, I can't hardly even take you serious. You look so different. Yeah, hey, I, I don't like to waste a lot of time shaving, right? You know what I mean? No, I know. But, hey, um, so what, what I want, one point I want to make, being that I'm old. So when I was a kid, the big thing was, hey, we need mature forests. Yeah. Because the European expansion. So he's to blame. <laughs> no, sorry. <laughs> you know, the European expansion, now I'm not that old. Yeah. Okay. But, but the European expansion happened, and we came over onto this continent. And if you look at, like, some of the first photographs, like we're talking Civil War era photographs, 
you'll see that the landscape was denuded. We cut every merchantable timber there was. So that virgin forest was cut. Mm, yeah. So when I was a kid, we were just still in that phase of recovery. But guess what? I'm 50. There's a lot of old timber out there now. We're not in that situation anymore. Mm-hmm. That is not the limiting factor for wildlife. Not at yeah. all. We've got a lot of mature forest, and the tree cover in, in, in North America is much greater than it was 50, 75 years ago. Huge. The limiting factor we have right now is early successional habitat. That's so right. you want to have if you want to have more bobwhite quail, you want to have more wild turkey, and you want to have healthy populations of them, and you're going to come ask me, I'm going to preach what I'm preaching right now. It's early successional habitat. It's insect availability. Um, and, you know, it's not fire ants eating the baby turkeys. It's not pileated woodpeckers pecking their heads, right? It's not predators? It, yeah, yeah. It's not, it's not snakes. Yeah, yeah, it's not bobcats and yeah. possums, right? Yeah. I'm going to talk to you about early successional habitat. And, again, that's why I'm so grateful to do the work I do. I, I really appreciate how energy companies have this thing arranged mm-hmm. on, a, on a spatial uh, scale perfect for what we're trying to do. That's you awesome. T- you take really any state probably. Let's take – well, I, read, I was reading that uh, PDF last night. You asked, what are, what are yeah, you reading? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was Virginia Department of Game and Inland Fisheries. They partnered with some, some groups and put together a big pamphlet for quail. Right. It just broke down basically the state and the land uses across the state. And um, you take out all or any open areas, 60% of the state was 100% forest. And it's like, that's a big portion that's of the state. a lot state. of forest. A lot of forest. Right. When you have a, a large agricultural um, cattle component to that state, that's still 60%. That's just all forest. But if you have these transects that cut through, now you're having what we talk often is usable space where these critters can be reared and basically recruited into an adult population because you have these transects of this habitat type that is so limited exactly. in these massive expanses of forest. That's that's what you guys are doing. Yeah, you're, you're putting critters where they probably couldn't be if these these areas weren't maintained right. in, in the way that they are and, and you know that's kind of it's kind of unfortunate because again the layman or the average tree hugger and i love mm-hmm. tree huggers you know i'll hug a tree if i get a chance but the average tree hugger is going <laughs> to see a right away and they're going to just think oh that's awful right right yeah, that's a right. terrible thing you know here's this forest and and you've cut right through it with this right away but as us as wildlife biologists land managers we see opportunity. 100%. We see habitat. And, and I'm, I'm very blessed, you know, again, to work in the organization I work with and have leadership in my organization that, that sees that vision, too, and understands this is not a bad thing on the environment. This is a critical component, again, especially as the, the, the canopy matures. Mm-hmm. We're getting, you know, we've got 100-year-old trees out there, pretty common now, 150-year-old trees. Uh, this is the component we really need. It's, it's truly the linchpin for a lot of different species out there. Creamore. Hmm. He just sealed his, his, his deal. He's always welcome back on the podcast. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Good deal. Preaching early successional habitat. <laughs> yeah. So now we got Travis here. To, he needs to seal his fate yep. here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would just say, you know, as Steve has already said, is, you know, early successional habitat is on the decline. Yeah. And I think whether it be woody plants that are competing with those species or be invasive plants, uh, weeds, uh, or um, woody shrubs, things like that, I mean, we, I think active management is, uh, is critical to, to facilitating this early successional habitat. 
Yeah. One, one of the things we kind of mentioned real, real quickly from an herbicide standpoint was we're not talking broad spectrum. Let's just go through and just completely spray miles and miles of these, these right-of-ways. We're talking very selective herbicides, um, spot treatment of specific plants or plant communities. That's right. And that makes the difference. So kind of from your angle, talk to us about that and maybe some um, herbicides that you guys are, are utilizing to accomplish this early successional habitat. Sure. As Steve mentioned earlier, I think the key is uh, really it's two different things. One is um, selective application, meaning uh, selective application methods like the individual plant treatments. That's a good way to remember it. That way you um, combine those individual plant treatments with the use of selective herbicides. There are, so it's important to understand before you purchase and apply a particular herbicide to understand what type of plants it controls. There's really... So we tend to want to stay away from non-selective herbicides because inherently when you do an application, you're going to get some overspray. Mm-hmm. We want to minimize collateral damage, as we that's the terminology we use. So when you're targeting a specific plant, there's desirable, and oftentimes there's desirable vegetation around the, the plant that you want to remove. And so we want to use, combine the selective application with the selective herbicides to just try to specifically target those undesirables and leave everything else, the grasses yep. and the forbs. And some of the herbicides that we use on the right-of-way that are um, commonly used that are selective would be uh, Vastland herbicide or Milestone. Mm-hmm. We've got a new herbicide that uh, we received federal registration back in the fall that we're real excited about that we think is going to provide another ele- level of selectivity and that um, there's a lot of forb species that are tolerant to it. Now, if you took some of these herbicides and you applied them, as you mentioned earlier, as a, in a broadcast type of application, you, you would end up controlling a lot of plants that you wanted to maintain. So that's where it's important to combine a selective herbicide with a selective application method. And so um, another product that's been widely used is um, Garlon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Triclopyr is the active yep. ingredient, and it, it works very well and very effective. Um, but again, it will control a lot of, when you when these herbicides are developed. A lot of them, if it controls broadleaf plants, it's going to control a lot of woody plants as well, and it may be selective to grasses. So that's where it's important to combine selective application. And I can't emphasize that enough: the selective application with a herbicide that is selective. We want to kind of stay away from these non-selective herbicides because inherently, when you go out on a site. If there is a lot of woody plants, even if you're using selective applications, if the population is high enough of woody plants, you're going to end up having to do a broadcast application. So you could do a broadcast application with a backpack or a four-wheeler or UTV, you know, if you're using hydraulic equipment. And that's where you, you really need to look at, you know, having a good understanding of what products that you're purchasing and how, you know, what species they have activity on and using some good judgment. We don't want someone going out there indiscriminately doing things the wrong way because you can screw up a lot of stuff. And, you know, whereas mowing or fire, which tend to be more non-selective in the manner that they are used, uh, combining selective application uh, with the selective herbicides is, is the best way to go. Perfect. I think another point, too, that I would – make on what Travis is really getting to as well is 
if you look at what we do and how we manage right-of-ways and how we work with these energy companies, there's a very, very small amount of herbicide actually used. Yeah. Um, which, again, I think, uh, you know, we, we had a conference. We had an energy conference that we hosted uh, a day and a half ago, Corteva and NWTF. And one of the presenters uh, even mentioned that, you know, they're using less than a gallon uh, for I, – I can't remember how much it was, Travis, that, but it was a, just the quantity was just very low. Uh, that they're actually having to use because they're you, they're doing individual plant treatments with a backpack sprayer. Yeah. Right. So. Typically, so the base when you're using herbicides, it, these materials are diluted with water. Mm-hmm. So I would say, at a minimum, 95 percent plus of what you're applying is actually water. Yeah. So it's a very very small amount of material. Yeah. I don't I don't want to get people. I don't want people to have the idea that we're just spraying mass quantities Absolutely. of herbicides yeah. out there. I mean, obviously. The, the energy company's not going to save money. <laughs> At that point, <laughs> you know, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's yeah. economics, obviously. But there's also these chemicals are so well-designed, they're so effective, and the individual plant treatments are so effective that they don't ha- you don't have to use a lot of chemical. So yeah, let's go back then. You mentioned uh, Garlon, which a lot of people are – I think a lot of people would know what Garlon, Garlon is. Garlon 3A. Garlon 3A. It's selected to kill – It'll kill everything from certain broadleaf plants, poison ivy, um, but a lot of your hardwood species too, uh, maple, sweet gum. So you're uh, kind of killing broadleaves and woody. woody sprout. Right. There's really, you know, when these products are brought out, um, there's very few. I mean, typically a lot of your herbicides either control broadleaf plants or they control grass species. Gotcha. And so and there are a few out there, non-selective herbicides, uh, Glyphosate is one that everybody's yeah. familiar with and uses. Yeah. And that's, you know, when you're talking food plots, that won't, might be one that's used for what we call a burn down. Yeah. Where you're right. trying to just control Clear all the, the existing vegetation right. before you come in and plant something. And so these herbicides don't have, uh, don't require license to purchase that we're talking about here. Okay. So um, the general public can use them. You don't. Uh, we certainly recommend they read and understand the label directions and applying yeah. to where they're intended to be used but um, a lot of them don't have soil residual activity Mm -hmm. so you can go in an understory if you need to and work in those types of areas but in terms of a right-of-way or other types of uh, land management you know the general public can go and purchase these you don't have to have a special license in order to apply gotcha so you've got garlon and you're going to kill and you're targeting woody sprouts so people can understand this you guys are Mixing up a, a mix that's less than, what, 3%, 3% is herbicide, the rest is water, that's maybe right. 5%. And you put, you've got a crew or a person who's got a UTV or a four-wheeler with a, back, with a sprayer on it or a couple backpack sprayers, and they're specifically targeting woody sprouts, woody regen, to remove that, kill it completely. So they don't have to return to keep mowing it to keep it from growing up. That's right. And so you're going... You take an area, uh, a, a tank of mixture, and it's less than 5% of herbicide, and then you're spraying it on less than 5% of the landscape, basically. Or it could be a little more, depending on the the, the average pockets, amount of... I'm sure. Yeah. And so that's kind of where it's, it's massive, big-scale management, but we're targeting very, very small areas. And, you know... I want to speak a little bit about the conversion. So you may have a utility company, an energy company, that's been doing rotational mowing. Mm-hmm. And so this this kind of evolves, right? So you may come in the first year 
you may have to do a mechanical. You may have to go through and just mow everything, sure. right? Yeah, because sure. you've got so many right, woody stems. And because you have so many woody species there, and, and they've got that huge root system, you may do a pretty mass coverage of, of Le Slade Garland. Right, it yeah. may be a broadcast yeah. application. Yeah, that first time. Sure. So that first year, that's why the cost inputs, it might be a little bit up front because you're going to have to do mechanical mm-hmm. and chemical. But what we're going to do is we're going to evolve this over time. So you're going to hit it pretty hard that first year. And, again, it may be more of a broadcast with your garland. But then maybe year two, you're coming back, and maybe at that point you're ready to go right into backpack sprayers. And you've got a crew of six, eight people on that right away. And then they're just targeting any re-sprout or anything that was missed from that broadcast application. You're already getting some response now from some of these other annuals and perennials coming back, and obviously you're not spraying those. Mm-hmm. Again, you're at that point you're down to individual plant treatments. And then often with a lot of the partners I work with, some in the Ozarks, by year three, they're kind of just in a maintenance mode. Sure. And yeah. that's when the cost savings really come really into play. It. right? Oh, yeah. So from that point on, you're putting minuscule amounts of chemical on the ground, and you're just in kind of a monitoring mode and, and getting to that sweet spot where we have that steady state. They're, right they're doing 80 grit management. That's you're it. hitting it with a rough sandpaper, and then you come back and find that, later That's on. it. That's a great, 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 great example. Well, with the mowing, you know, typically they will initiate mowing, especially if the woody plants are really tall. If they're not, if they're not over 10 or feet or taller, a lot of times they can even skip the mowing for the initial. A lot of times that's done just to reduce the height sure. so yeah. they can follow they can back up easy. with a herbicide yeah. application. That's like but worst case scenario. That's right. right. Yeah. But once they, and then they may, as Steve mentioned, if, it, if the densities are extremely high, they would go in and do probably a broadcast application. But when they come back the next time, you're going to greatly and uh, significantly reduce that stem count. But depending on where you are in the country, you know, we all understand plant succession. If you're working in a right-of-way, it's um, surrounded by forest. I mean, you've got plants that are going to seed in. Oh, so yeah. this, you're never going to completely get away from maintenance. But over yeah. time, as Steve mentioned, those inputs, we're not doing right. our job if your inputs costs aren't going down. And yeah. so we're, we may start with mechanical if it's necessary. But as we move into using herbicides, we're eventually relying on that biological control, which is that plant competition. Mm-hmm. And as Steve mentioned, if we build that early successional habitat, we know from research that that part of that biological control comes from wildlife um, predation, where they're sure. eating those yeah. tree seeds that are being yeah. uh, that yeah. are falling out the on the right of way. So yeah. you build that habitat; those species are going to come, and that's going to help provide mm-hmm. competition that is going to reduce those inputs and maintenance costs. You know. Uh, Travis used two words that are key to this. And, again, um, you know, this is a message. You know, I'm traveling all over the country, and, you know, you, you sit in, you get in the airplane and somebody asks you what you do, right? And oh, you're yeah. like, oh, my gosh, okay. Um, so what do I do, <laughs> right? How long is this flight? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so, but, but Travis mentioned two words that are key to what we do, and those two words were active management. Yep. And what I like to say to folks, I mean, you can be – on two different extremes you can say hey we need to just lock the gate turn it back to nature and let nature take its course right that's one philosophy with land yeah. management right not a good one but yeah not a good one <laughs> not, but yeah, but but preservation you, right but you hear that preservationist yes. uh yes. that spin um 
But I like to say, hey, you know what? We're part of this ecology, and we've opened Pandora's box. Mm -hmm. And it would be irresponsible of us not to employ active management. It would be absolutely irresponsible. And we have these rights of ways, again, millions of acres, where we can't use every tool oftentimes, right? But that doesn't mean we just let it go or or, or we do the wrong thing and only rely on mechanical. There's a lot of different tools we can use, and we need to use them strategically and and for the betterment of habitat, wildlife, and people. Mm. Um, But active management, that to me is, is a cornerstone, whether it's your own property, whether it's, you know, industrial timberlands, whatever it is, um, we are well past the stage where it's a preservationist, uh, uh, you know, key that you can just let yes. it go. Um, yeah. You just can't do that, no, unfortunately. No. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that's just we hunted a wilderness area. Yep. Not to go and crack that egg, but we hunted a wilderness area this this fall just to kind of see what a wilderness area in the Ozark with would look like. Then. And it was like Mindset. dominated by eastern red cedar. Oh, Even hardwood yeah. stands, eastern Beautiful red cedar. landscapes of glades that should be very diverse. Well, very diverse, open. I'll, uh, pro- I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, but that usually doesn't stop me. But I'll tell you another good example. You drive into Yellowstone, Yeah. right? Yeah. Once you drive out of that gate and yep. you get into where the private landowners are, you're going to see some beautiful country. As soon yep. as you cross onto that national park where they've taken more – preservationist approach and inhibited active management you're going to find disaster yeah yep and then they're going to they're going to want to say that's global warming or you know no no it's lack of active management that's right yeah that's right yeah for sure true here's one thing that uh we we talk often on the podcast and that's the um shrub component of the landscape which is a little bit more advanced or down the road from let's say early successional Mm -hmm. plant communities but that's a an important part of let's say portion of the life cycles for a lot oh, of yeah. different species that yeah. we're talking about, um, and we're getting down to nitty gritty here with the right away maintenance. But mm-hmm. if you guys see let's say a shrub height wise that is not going to interfere with power lines sure. or something like that, is that something that is taken into account or oh, yeah. it's woody? It's gone. So what we what we try to do, and I can't illustrate this on a on a podcast. Yep. But we often follow what we call a wire border zone okay. or a pipe border zone, depending yep. on if it's pipeline sure. or overhead wire. system going underneath. Yeah. yeah. So yep. obviously right over the pipe or right under the wire, yeah, you got to be pretty disciplined in allowing any kind of growth, right? Sure. Gotcha. So, But then we try to have a gradient, okay, so that as you kind of – what I like to describe as feathering the edges, right? <laughs> Do you want to host sometimes? <laughs> Seriously, we're going to have to pay them extra. Man. Hey, uh, I only eat steak and oysters, so <laughs> okay. I'll take that. But but we call it that wire Not border zone. Right? <laughs> no, I like those Gulf oysters. Okay. <laughs> um, but we call that a wire border zone or a pipe border zone. And, again, let's just talk about the wild turkey. So you need that area where you have those grasshoppers. That's going to be in yep. the middle. That's yep. going to be where you've got kind of that lower you know, herbaceous yep. growth. But we also need some overhead cover for these poults, sure. and we need a safe place for that ground. They nest on the ground. We need a safe place for that to happen. Well, guess Thermal what? cover in the summer. If yeah. we've got that little brush border as we get towards the edge, towards the timber, that's the perfect spot where we can have that actual the ground nest and a place they can run into to get away from an aerial predator when they're very small. Um, so, yes, um, I don't want to create the picture that we're just – 
you know, making a golf course of the entire right of way. It yeah. depends. It depends on the regulations. We have to obviously follow mm -hmm. FERC, sure. uh, PHMSA. There's these federal regulators, depending on if it's electrical or pipeline. We got to fall within their guidelines. But anywhere we can, if there's particularly a wide right of way, we have that opportunity. We're going to create a prescription where we follow that border concept so we can incorporate that diversity, and it's Love critical. It yeah, that's right. And a lot of it does go back to what are, you know, these pipelines and electric utilities have to follow federal regulations. And, you know, if it is a narrow right-of-way, they may not be able to have they that border sure, zone. Right. Yeah. Sure. But, the, again, going back to the research with, as Steve mentioned, the energy for wildlife session we hosted, we had Dr. Carolyn Mahan from Penn State who's been doing, is doing research on a right-of-way project that's been going on now for over 65 years looking at vegetation management practices uh, impacts on both plant communities as well as wildlife species a variety of wildlife everything from amphibians and reptiles butterflies wild turkey um, mm -hmm. and deer yep. and looking at how mowing and the use of herbicides or hand cutting impact all of those things and and we have in that area it's a very wide transmission right away and they do have the border zone and she's seen how critical that is mm, the, for both abundance and uh, species diversity. Yeah, the diversity index on that on that wire border zone. I'm gonna tell you, gentlemen, it, it's like, hey, we're talking rainforest diversity, right? Oh, wow. I mean, oh, yeah. compared to just your average habitat space Close in North America, yeah. it is. I mean, you you know, you got your mature timber right there alongside it. Then boom, you got your shrub layer. Then you got your herbaceous forbs and grasses, all right there, spatially arranged perfectly. Um, so it's just an ideal situation. And let's face it, if I had to tell you guys, hey, go shoot me a deer this afternoon, you're going to go find a right away. You're going to throw a, you know, <laughs> throw your tree stand up right there. Same thing. If I hand you a butterfly net, go catch me a butterfly. You're not going to do it in mature forest. You're going to go find a right away. And 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 that's what we're talking about. There's just a lot of diversity at that edge. Awesome. Yeah, that, that's all. Just I don't know if we talked about it pre-show or during the show. How many acres, you know, are you guys working on? What's the goal? What's the future look like? Yeah, so we're real excited for the potential. So this program that I'm working with is it's the NWTF Habitat Endorsement Program. So we're basically collaborating with energy companies, uh, working through their vegetation management plan, right, showing them these extra tools for their toolbox, um, and then we endorse their plan. Um, so that's really the, our approach with the companies. Gotcha. Uh, we just started this program, so it's been going about a year. We okay. did we did a soft launch the first year, right? We're yeah. you know we're we're tweaking you know our approaches, uh, but already we have five companies signed on, right? Um, you know, electric and and petroleum. Uh, mm -hmm. I'll name a few. You'll recognize Shell Oil. Oh yeah, everybody knows Shell yeah. Oil. Uh, so we're working with them on a large pipeline in Pennsylvania, mm. uh, enable midstream in the Ozarks, Missouri, uh, parts of uh, uh, Arkansas and Oklahoma. Okay. Yep. Uh, enable midstream is doing some very progressive work, beautiful right of ways there in awesome. uh, in Arkansas. Uh, so you know we've got four or five companies we're working with right now. We're certainly partnering with. We just partnered with Corteva uh, just recently, That's and right. we're going to expand that. So. You know, the potential is huge, right? Yeah. The potential is great. Um, we're hoping to expand it 15, 20, 25 companies in the next 
two to three years oh, wow. and get more of this on the ground. But already in the first year, we enhanced over 5,000 acres. So we're really grateful for that great start. Fantastic. Yeah, great Matt, start. I was going to make a comment, if yes, you don't sir. mind. Uh, earlier talking about shrubs yep. and on the right-of-way, I think, you know, if they are compatible and they mm-hmm. aren't going to be a threat to, you know, and they're for the intended purpose of that right-of-way as far as um, service Pipes, reliability right. and yeah. whatnot, they certainly, and with, with Steve's program, it's taking that, integrated vegetation management to the next level, integrated habitat management. So as we work with these energy companies and the folks that do their contract work on the right-of-way, we're we're continuously trying to educate them on what are some of these favorable species that are good for wildlife, whether it be low or high bush blueberry or some of these other species to, to leave those. And while in another example, I would say in those where we may have maybe a, we do have a monoculture of an invasive plant that certainly is compatible with the purpose of the right-of-way. We're working with energy companies around, well, maybe it's still compatible with the purpose of the right-of-way, but maybe it's a good idea to go in because of we've got a monoculture of a particular plant species to try to do some kind of management there where we can increase the plant biodiversity and get make it you know better habitat. Yeah, so, you know, there's so many scenarios out there. You know, yeah. when we work with a partner, maybe they're going across old, you know, ag field, or maybe they're going across, you know, Bahia grass pasture that's been established and been there for 50 years. We may then, you know, we may call on, you know, experts like Travis, like, hey, how do we break this up? Mm-hmm. How do we bust up this Bahia? How do, is there a chemical that can knock it back, give it a little bit of time for the natural seed bank to recover and get going? So, so you know, every 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 partnership every energy company is different and certainly every right-of-way is very very diverse as far as land surface and landowners so it's unfortunately not just one contiguous management technique for the for an entire stretch you know it it, it does get complicated complicated but that's what happens when you work with mother nature and you allow diversity to come back to the landscape exactly and that's okay because then you're applying less herbicide, your techniques mm-hmm. are different, you gotta change the way you manage it, and that's what's needed. Yeah, it's you just, have to do that. It's kind of natural diversity at that point. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's it awesome. provides year round habitat. It's not just yes. a short period of time. Right. Yeah. I, right. I think you guys just to reiterate what we've been saying is you think of the largest food plot in the country, what you're working on and it's and it's basically a food plot, if you will. I put air quotes up, but it's something that's beneficial to so many insects, amphibians, birds, mm-hmm. to where now you're looking to where you guys are the National Wild Turkey Federation. You're focused on turkeys, but you're managing something where there's all sorts of other nonprofits who are focused on monarch butterflies sure, sure. or right. the native insect, uh, native yeah. bees. And so right. you guys are just working. Even though you're wearing a turkey cap, you're working with with mother nature or working with nature and and, and yeah, restoring and I, the landscape that's kind of the beauty of it right yeah and uh not only is it the world's largest food plot air quotes again yeah um but when done properly it provides food every day of the year yes it's not an annual there's something yeah. there it may not always feed the same species but there's something there and it's, it's productive um yeah. and it's providing a great purpose on the landscape yeah and cover 
exactly. and sure, cover. Sure, That's yeah. sure. When we're talking to, to landowners, like how do we maximize your property? It's food and cover on as many acres as we can get, not just one or the other. Mm-hmm. It's food That's and right. cover. That's exactly. why we manage for natives because they do both of that. Yeah. And this is a perfect example of food and cover mm-hmm. across, what was it, 14 million acres potentially? Up, right up to yeah. 14 million acres yeah. when you combine Huge pipeline amount. and electric utility. And you're taking something that, so we do real estate as well. Um, that's w- sitting on the airplane, and what do you do? Well, I do a whole <laughs> bunch of stuff. Uh, how long? It's not a long enough flight to explain. Sure. Um, you're taking something that typically in the real estate world can be an ugly thing. I don't really like that it's got a power line that runs through the middle of it. I don't really like right. that the, the, the gas line, line runs through it. Right. Yeah. But you guys are taking something that was typically an ugly thing in in most people's eyes, and now you're making it one of the most beneficial parts of the farm, probably the most beneficial yeah, part I mean, of we, the farm. We, we see it as an asset. Oh, yeah. Huge. That's how we see right. it. Not and a liability. Yeah. 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 And once we communicate that, and again, that's why the energy companies really like this program, mm-hmm. because we flip it over. So when yeah. we talk to the landowner, we, we, we hopefully give them that vision, too, that, hey, this is actually an opportunity, um, and we're going to create a steady state. Uh, habitat magnet, wildlife magnet, right through the middle of your property. Oh, yeah. man. That's, that's awesome. Right. Good so. for you guys. That's yeah, some exciting stuff. I love, I love stuff. the program. I love it. Seriously. <laughs> well, yeah. thanks for having us. Yeah, yeah thanks for coming on, that. fellas. Yeah.